Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be back in the Word of God with you again. Today our study is in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, and we're going to pick up our text starting with verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. History records for us a interesting footnote. It was during the dark winter of 1864 at Petersburg, Virginia. The Confederate Army of Robert E. Lee faced the Union divisions of General Ulysses S. Grant. The war was now three and a half years old, and the glorious charge had long since given way to the muck and mud of trench warfare. Late one evening, one of Lee's generals, Major General George Pickett, received word that his wife had given birth to a beautiful baby boy. Up and down the line, the Southerners began building huge bonfires in celebration of the event. Now, these fires did not go unnoticed in the northern camps. Grant got a little nervous about this, and so he sent out scouts to see what was going on. The scouts returned with the message that Pickett was now a proud papa. He had a son, and these were fires of celebration. Grant and Pickett had actually been classmates at West Point. They knew each other very well, and so to honor the occasion, Grant also ordered that bonfires should be built. But what a strange night it was. For miles on both sides of the lines, fires burned. No shots were fired, no yelling back and forth, no war was fought. Only light celebrating the birth of a child. But it didn't last forever. Soon the fires burned down and once again the darkness took over. The darkness of the night and the darkness of war. The good news of the gospel of Christ is that in the midst of a great darkness there came a light. And the darkness was not able to overcome the light. This light was not just a little flicker. It was an eternal flame. A light shining in the darkness has a way of getting our attention. In the midst of darkness, it has a way of giving hope. John's gospel record teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the light shining in the darkness. The darkness that John refers to is the darkness of our world, the sin, the hatred, the violence, brokenness, disease, death. The darkness is everything that goes against the nature of God and his eternal plan for man. Jesus came to shine light into our darkness, to bring hope into a world without hope. The ray of hope we see in Jesus Christ is God's promise of life. Take another look at verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. 
follow the flow of the text, and we see that in verses 6, 7, and 8, the Apostle John introduces the ministry of John the Baptist. Then he returns in verse 9 to Christ, only to return to the ministry of John the Baptist, starting in verse 15. And I think what we need to recognize in this text is that the Apostle John was looking back at those early days when the Lord Jesus Christ first began to show who he truly is. The Apostle John looks back at the ministry of John the Baptist, still amazed at how quick the nation of Israel rejected their long-awaited Messiah. Verse 6 starts out right away with an interesting statement about John the Baptist. The text records that John the Baptist was a man who was sent from God. Remember what Christ said about John in Luke 7, 28. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one, the prophet, who fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi 3.1. Turn there, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi was written about 400 years before the ministry of Christ. The message of Malachi for Israel is to not forget the love of God. Malachi 3, notice verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. When a king in that day would travel, men would be sent ahead to clear the stones, the rocks off of the path, clearing the way for the coming of the king. Then a herald would come, shouting out ahead of the arrival of the king that the king was coming. Malachi promised and predicted that a forerunner would come, proclaiming the arrival of the king. This was the role of John the Baptist. He proclaimed that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was living in the flesh and was about to show himself to the men and women of this world. John the Baptist made it known that the time of waiting was over, even though no new revelation from God had come for over 400 years. God was now revealing himself in the person of God the Son, the Servant of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep in mind that John the Baptist was the son of Zacharias, a priest, and his mother Elizabeth came from a lineage of priests. But John the Baptist was only one of three men who took the lifelong vow of the Nazarites. Turn over to Numbers chapter 6. This is the passage where we get the teaching of the Nazarite vow. The teaching of this vow starts in verse 1 and goes all the way down to verse 21. Now, we're not going to look at the entire passage, so I would urge you later on to come back again to this text. But number six, let's start in verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head. Until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself, To the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. The bottom line is that any person taking this vow had to abstain completely from wine and from strong drink. They couldn't cut their hair during the time of the vow, and you had to keep from having any contact with the dead. 
Now, most vows back then were given for a period of time, but in the Bible, we do have three men who were Nazarites for life, Samuel, Samson, and John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1 records that John's father, Zacharias, was ministering in the temple as a priest. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. To take the vow of a Nazarite meant that you were willing to cast off the comforts of this world to demonstrate to everyone that you were separated unto God. As we said before, the ministry of John the Baptist was foretold in Malachi 3. And in Luke, we read that before John was even born, an angel of the Lord told his father that he'd be separated unto God. A man sent by God, filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, And this is why John spoke as a man with power and authority. Back in our text now in John, take another look at verse 7. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Think of the focus in this verse. It is not so much about John the Baptist as it is of what he came to do. The focus is on why John the Baptist came and on who sent him. The lesson that we should take from this is that a witness does not call attention to himself, but instead calling attention to the one who died for us. John the Baptist came to testify, to give evidence of the light, Jesus Christ. If you think of a courtroom, we understand that a witness is not the same as an attorney. In the courtroom, a lawyer is there to argue his case. The lawyer tries to prove a point, tries to influence the people on the jury to make the decision that he's looking for. But a witness is called to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. A witness is called to testify to what they know. John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the light. And so John testified of this truth, that all through him might believe. This is the teaching of 2 Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any should perish. For John the Baptist, he cast a wide net, calling all men to faith in the Messiah. Now, before we move on, Listen closely, because this sets up your entire understanding of the gospel records. Believe in verse 7. It's not just an intellectual understanding. This is another area of great confusion in the church today on this point. As we're going to see in a few minutes, to believe the gospel message is faith. It is trust. John uses this verb almost a hundred times in this gospel to express what must take place for a person to receive the gift of life. He never used the word repent, not once in this gospel, but he believed you could get saved by the message contained in this gospel. That bears repeating. He never used the word repent, not once in this gospel, but he believed you could get saved by the message contained in this gospel. Repentance is just a change of mind. The only time repentance is used in connection with the gospel in the Bible is for the specific sin of rejecting the Savior. Peter used it this way in Acts 2 when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and the scriptures say that the men of Jerusalem were cut to the heart because they realized they had killed the Christ. They had rejected their Messiah. And Peter told them to repent or change their mind about the Messiah. 
must there be a contrite heart, a recognition of your sins in order to be saved. Absolutely. And there must be an understanding of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, his death, and his resurrection. But then the response is faith, trust in the Savior and his life-giving message. I think most Christians today just simply misunderstand and misuse the term repentance, thinking that it only refers to a contrite heart. But here's the problem. That's not how the Bible uses the term, and that is not how Reformed Bible teachers are using it. Here's what I'm getting at. The Reformed circles of the church are spreading the message far and wide that in order to be saved, we must plead with the Lord to forgive us of our sins, pleading with the Lord to deliver us from our sin. That is what they mean by repentance. Then we must commit ourselves to obedience and surrender to his lordship just to be saved. This is getting cleaned up just to take a bath. They are confusing discipleship with the gospel, confusing sanctification with justification. And while I'm not trying to offend anyone, before God I believe with all my heart that they are proclaiming a false message. Are believers to repent? Absolutely. But the purpose of the gospel of John was evangelistic. Listen to John 20. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Belief, faith, leads to life in his name. The Philippian jailer, when he asked Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved in Acts 16, Paul responded by saying, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The Apostle John called people to life in the name of Christ, but his message was not repentance or pleading for forgiveness of sins. It was faith. It was trust. If you read the other gospel records, you will see that both John the Baptist and Jesus certainly did call the people of Israel to repentance. But that was because they had already turned away from their God. So be careful about the context and confusing the gospel message with the exhortations that were given to Israel in their unbelief. The message of the gospel is simple, faith alone, and the message of Christ alone, nothing more, nothing less. Take a look at verse 8. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. I believe the Spirit of God inspired these words so that there would be absolutely no misunderstanding of the role of John the Baptist. Keep in mind, in Luke chapter 3, we learn, Now as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. In other words, it may seem obvious to us that John was not the Christ, but at that time, there were Jews living in expectation of the coming Messiah. And when they saw the ministry of John the Baptist, they saw that his life, his testimony was so powerful and distinct from anything else. Many did wonder whether or not he was the Christ. This is why down in verse 20, we will see that when the priests and Levites heard of his ministry, when they came down from Jerusalem to investigate, John confessed, I am not the Christ. I think the perfect illustration of this verse is right in the sky when we think of the moon and the sun. The moon itself is a dead chunk of rock in space. There is no life on the moon. There's no spark from fires, no light of its own. But the work of the moon is to be a giant reflector in the sky to pick up the light of the sun and reflect that light back down to the earth. The moon is not the light. 
It is positioned in space to bear witness to the light. But out there beyond the darkness of the world, beyond the darkness of the night, is the sun. The sun is a giant mixture of burning gas, a nuclear furnace burning away, pouring out a continual stream of light. The function of the moon is only temporary because the light of the day is coming. The sun sheds its light directly on the earth, dispelling darkness in a way that the moon could never do. Such is the case with John the Baptist. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. Now here's the tragedy. After John the Baptist died, even after the death and resurrection of Christ, his movement continued. Twenty years after the resurrection of Jesus, Acts 18 and 19 teach us that Paul encountered disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus. And we even know, as recent as the 1980s, there was a group just south of Baghdad, hostile to the Christian faith, but still claiming a link back to John the Baptist. This is how denominations get started, when the focus becomes on the messenger and not on the message. With verse 9, John's thoughts go back to Jesus. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Because of the Greek wording, there's actually two different ways that this verse can be translated. And there's probably a footnote somewhere which gives what I think is probably the better reading. It should, in my opinion, read, that was the true light which, coming into the world, gives light to every man. The point is that Christ is the true light. He stands apart from the imitations of man. Jesus came into the world giving light to every man. Now, if you take up this idea of light again, light can either be absorbed or it can be reflected. Think of Moses in Exodus 34, having been in the glory of God's presence when he came down Mount Sinai. His face was still shining so much that he put a veil over his face. I think this is a perfect picture of the redeemed in Christ, reflecting the light of Christ to the world. But what happens if the light of Christ falls upon dark and wicked hearts? Then that light is not reflected, but it cannot be said that the light of Christ did not shine upon them. Now, if you understand what this is actually teaching us, this is a powerful lesson. The light of Christ shines upon every man, every person, all without distinction. All have some light. I think the main point of this verse is that by Christ coming into this world, he was able to provide the light of the redemption message. But we also must recognize that Romans clearly teaches that those who do not have the written revelation of God, those who do not have the actual gospel of Christ presented to them, at the very least have the light of God's creation and the conscience that he has given them, which both testify of the Creator so that every man and every woman is without excuse. God holds men and women responsible for the light they have. And if men stay in darkness, it is not because there's no light for them, but it is because they prefer darkness. Or as John testifies in chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Verses 10 and 11 in our text teach us, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now, verse 10 all by itself is amazing because in one verse, John taught the incarnation of Christ, creation, and the rejection of Christ. Knowing God in verse 10 is another way of saying they did not come to know him through faith. As I read the words of these pages, it almost seems to me that John was looking back and was still amazed at the rejection that the Lord faced. How quickly both Jews and Gentiles turned away from the light. 
It's hard to even comprehend for the Creator to walk in His creation and yet to be rejected. What a great tragedy and what a great irony. People rub shoulders with God, but yet were too blind to see. But what was even worse was that His own people did not receive Him. He came to the Jews and they had no use for Him because He did not fit into their expectations of the Messiah. The wording in verse 11, that they did not receive him, it means literally they did not welcome him. They wanted a Messiah that would get Rome off of their backs, and that is not what Christ came for the first time. The Lord had been preparing them for his coming for centuries. The prophets had clearly foretold it. The fact that they had come back into the promised land after being hauled off into captivity to Babylon meant that they should have expected it. They should have known better. They should have clearly recognized him as their long-awaited Messiah. Remember the words from Isaiah 53, Israel in the future, looking back at their own unbelief, testifying, who has believed our report? Isaiah predicted the rejection of the Savior by the men and women of Israel. Now, these next few verses are very important, again, to our understanding of the gospel of Christ. Take a careful look at verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These are very important words if you want to accurately understand and convey the gospel message. Even though the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah, there was a remnant. You see, the remnant principle in the Word of God teaches that throughout the ages, there's always a faithful remnant. A remnant did believe. A remnant did receive him as the Messiah. This is one of the great texts that contain the gospel message. This is God's plan of salvation for mankind. Verse 12 starts with this little word, but but as many as received him. Thank God the story did not end with verses 10 and 11, that the world did not know him and his own did not receive him. Now, John gives us an important statement with verse 12. Read it again. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. The New King James records that God gave them the right to become children of God. The King James records the power to become children of God. The wording actually includes both of these ideas, the power, the right, the privilege. To believe in his name is to believe in what he stands for, is to believe that he is the great I am, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God. When the angel appeared to Joseph, the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To believe in What his name represents is to believe that Jesus can save you from your sins. His name is the key to our salvation. The presupposition that exists is that you recognize your sin, you recognize your need of a Savior, but do not misunderstand this verse. This does not mean and cannot mean that first you must believe in him, then you receive him, and then you become a child of God. The meaning that John intends us to understand is that to believe, to have faith or trust is the same as to receive the Savior. This is true in all of John's writings and is consistent with the New Testament message. Listen, the gospel message is not asking Jesus into your heart. He lives in the redeemed, but that is not the message. Notice the verbs used, believe, received, and become. The gospel is faith in him, belief, trust, receiving him as Savior. 
These are the words the New Testament uses to describe the action men must take to be reconciled to a holy God. Those that believe in his name have a right to become children of God, and to become a child of God is to be born of God. The new birth is not of blood, not of a bloodline, not of a human descent. Not just simply because you are from the bloodline of the Hebrew people. God has no grandchildren. This is the lesson they still need to learn. This message needs to be heard and understood today. We are not all God's children. He is our creator, to be sure. But we are by nature children of wrath and stand condemned apart from Christ. Just because someone's parents are believers, it does not mean that the children are reconciled to God. Being born of God is not of the will of the flesh, meaning it is not something that you can do yourself. No amount of commitment on your part, no amount of resolve on your part can make you reconcile to God other than childlike faith in Him. Religious duty will not get you there. Again, salvation is not getting cleaned up in order to take a bath. There is no amount of spiritual cleansing in your life that you can do to make you reconcile to God. A person does not have the power in his own flesh to produce new life in Christ. The new birth is a gift to be received, not a reward for our efforts. And being born of God is not the will of man, or literally here, not the decision of a father on behalf of his children. This should do away with the idea that if you baptize your infant, they will come to faith in Christ. Because the new birth is of God, and it is his will that those who believe in the Son have eternal life. And now in Christ, we have the legal right to be children of God. And as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14 is another powerful verse, a beautiful statement about our Savior. Take a look. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible on the doctrine of the Incarnation. The Word, God the Son, took on human flesh. This should take you back to our studies from Isaiah. John simply says, The Word became flesh. Jesus stepped into his own creation. Jesus interrupted time, space, and the history of mankind. He took to himself human flesh. And the wording that Christ dwelt among us carries with it the idea of pitching a tent. God dwelt among the people of Israel once again. Another way of saying it in this text would be to literally say, he tabernacled among us. The word dwelt is the same word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt. And as we have seen in our previous studies, that was Christ. Remember the teaching of Exodus 33, 11 at the tabernacle. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Turn over to 1 Kings 8. In 1 Kings 8, the ark was being brought to the temple built by Solomon. This is the dedication of the temple. Skip down to verse 9. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, when they came out of the land of Egypt, and it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. Notice, For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. The cloud that filled the temple was a visible representation 
of the Lord's glory. The same thing happened at the dedication of the tabernacle in Exodus 40. The glory of God filled the Holy of Holies, indicating to the people that God was with them. The Lord Jesus Christ had this inner glory. This was the glory that John and the apostles saw within the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon begins to pray. It's a beautiful expression of prayer in this chapter, but notice what he says down in verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Solomon thought that it was incredible that God would dwell on the earth. That is exactly what Christ did then, and it's exactly what he did when he came in the flesh. Head back to John. The incarnation, God in the flesh, it was the greatest possible expression of God's grace to mankind. Again, notice the wording here in verse 14. We beheld his glory. In the Old Testament, glory refers to the very presence of God, and so think of the teaching that is here. Just as the Lord Jesus manifested the glory of God in the tabernacle, so it is that he displayed his divine presence before the apostles. Only begotten simply means he was unique, one of a kind. He is the one full of grace and truth. John was looking back to the days that he had spent in the company of this glorious person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that John uses for the word beheld means to gaze with a purpose. It means to regard with admiration. Gazing upon the incarnate Son of God, they saw one full of grace and truth, which was a Jewish expression, a Jewish way of saying the sum total of divine revelation. Grace because God is love, and truth because God the Son is the light to the world. God became a human, God showed men his glory, and God offered us grace and truth. Turn to one more passage, turn to Revelation 21. We have seen in our previous studies the glory of Christ before creation. We have looked at the glory of Christ in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and now let us look to his glory in the eternal state. The context of Revelation 21 demands that we understand this is after the rapture, after the second coming of Christ, after the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the old earth. This is the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem in the eternal state. Revelation 21, take it up in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Notice, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Skip down to verse 22. The text is now describing New Jerusalem in the eternal state. Verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. There's a beautiful future in store for all those who trust in the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. IMetTheMessiah.com is a website that shares testimonies of Jews who have come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. Listen to just a couple of these testimonies. Grant Berry said he moved to the States from Israel, and even though he was successful in his work, he became empty and depressed. But a woman he worked with told him about Jesus, and so he opened up the New Testament and began to read. 
He said that he tried to pray to God each night for a period of three weeks, but felt like his prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. I was frustrated, he said. Here was this Christian girl that had a relationship with my God, the God of Abraham. And here I was, a Jew, trying to have a relationship with my God, the God of Abraham, and nothing. I was disconnected. Barry told her about his frustration with feeling that he was able to reach God. Her response? I've been trying to tell you for six to eight months, you can't have the Father without the Son. Just a short time later, Barry came to faith in Jesus. Model Balliston said that he had always heard about the outward things that one needed to do to be close to God, but never could make sense of it. He was curious because his grandparents warned him to stay away from the New Testament because they said it was filled with hatred for the Jews. But one day as a college student, Balliston began to read the New Testament at a library and found the truth for himself. I thought it was going to be a handbook on how to persecute the Jews, he testified. And yet when I opened it, I read a story written by Jews about Jewish people. As he read the New Testament, he understood that, quote, this is the one who was promised in our Bible in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It's astonishing. If you were to just read that chapter, you would say, oh, this is some Christian Bible. This is Jesus. What you realize, though, is that it is in the middle of our Bible, our Jewish Bible. He soon told his father about his faith in Christ, and even though he too was skeptical at first, his father began to open up the Word of God, and he received Jesus as his Savior. The greatest witnessing tool ever written is right before us. The Gospel of John is the Gospel of belief. It is designed to call men and women to faith, to trust in the Messiah of Israel. Learn it, live it, and use it to tell others of the one who came from heaven to tabernacle among men, the Lord Jesus, full of grace and truth. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 